Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I am your host, Maddie Gobo, events manager. Um, we're so glad you're here today. We're going to have a great conversation between two friends who both happen to be authors. They're going to be talking about a new linked short story collection called Living Color, Angie Rubio's Stories. I'm going to tell you more about our guest today and the book uh, in just a minute, but I want to say a few things about Skylight first. Um, so right now we are open every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., uh, though I believe we're going to be expanding our hours soon, so stay tuned to our social media for that. We're also planning to reopen the Arts Annex pretty soon, um, so again, check social media for that. We're looking forward to getting all those art books back and shoppable. Um, we are always taking online orders at skylightbooks.com, and if you're here in LA, we're happy to serve you with curbside pickup every day, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m., um, and you can shop in the store with a mask and, and social distancing, um, just, you know, emphasizing <laughs> those rules again, uh, in case you weren't familiar with the global pandemic we've all been living through for the last eight months. Um, all right, so without further ado, I'm just so excited to introduce today. Um, we have Donna Miscolta and Alex Espinoza. They're gonna be talking about Donna's new book, Living Color, Angie Rubio Stories. And they're also gonna be talking a bit about Alex's new book, The Five Acts of Diego Leon. Um, welcome to the podcast, Donna and Alex. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you so much, Maddie. Thanks for having us. Oh, sorry, Donna, go ahead. No, no, just gonna say thank you also. It's, it's just a pleasure to be part of this, especially with Alex. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to have a great chat. Um, I want to first tell our listeners a little bit about the book and also about the two of you so they know who they're listening to. So Living Color is a linked short story collection set in California in the 1960s and 70s. They follow the main character, Angie Rubio, from kindergarten through high school, offering a portrait of the artist as a shy, awkward Mexican-American girl who learns to express herself through the written word. Donna Miscolta's third book of fiction, this is her third book, Living Color, Angie Rubio Stories, is coming out now. Um, it's coming out from Jaded Ibis Press. She also has another short story collection, Ola and Goodbye, which was the winner of the Doris Backwin Award for Writing by a Woman and published by Carolina Wren Press in 2016. It also won an Independent Publishers Award for Best Regional Fiction and an International Latino Book Award for Best Latino Focused Fiction. Donna is also the author of the novel When the De La Cruz Family Danced from Signal 8 Press, which poet Rick Barrett called intricate, tender, and elegantly written, a necessary novel for our times. And in conversation with Donna is Alex Espinoza. Alex Espinoza was born in Tijuana, Mexico. He came to the United States with his family at the age of two and grew up in suburban Los Angeles. Author of the novel Stillwater Saints, he received an MFA from the University of California, Irvine a recipient of the Margaret Bridgman Fellowship in Fiction at the Breadloaf Writers' Conference. Espinoza is currently an Associate Professor of English at California State University, Fresno. Oh, is that an old bio? <laughs> you want to update us, Alex? Where, where do you now teach? <laughs> I am um, an Associate Professor of Creative Writing uh, at UC Riverside, and I'm also the Tomas Rivera Endowed Chair of Creative Writing. I didn't realize that. That was a old bio. It's <laughs> still floating out there. I should have checked with you first, but um, oh, congratulations on the new gigs. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So um, Donna and Alex, do you guys want to start us off with some readings today? Absolutely. That sounds like fun. What do you say, Donna? Uh, sure. Something short. 
<laughs> something short. Um, do you want to go first, Donna? You're you're the one with the book out, so <laughs> I yield the floor to you. Okay, I, I'm just going to read a short segment from one of the stories. Uh, these stories are chronological uh, in terms of the grades that Angie goes through in school. And uh, this one is called Social Studies when she's in the fourth grade. You know this is the dumb class, don't you? Wanda Garcia said to Angie at recess, right after Angie had won the California History B that Miss Leake had said would be the most challenging test so far in their social studies unit. They would have to stand up, think on their feet, and say their answer out loud. It would be, it would be a measure of their preparation. It would test their poise. It would strengthen their character. Miss Leake referred to character a lot, the meaning of which rather stumped even Angie, who had established herself as the smartest one in the class. She was always the first to raise her hand. She sped through the reading levels, and she always scored 100% in spelling with hardly any effort, even breezing through the word squirrel, which everyone else got wrong. So Wanda's question, which was given without malice, but in a sympathetic, helpful way, someone would inform another that a booger dangled from her nose, or she had food in her braces, dismayed Angie. Because she didn't want to be told something she didn't already know, Angie answered, I know that. There were three fourth grade classes at Kimball Park Elementary. Angie, who was standing in the four square line next to Wanda, looked over at the four square game in front of Mrs. Dewey's class, and then beyond that to the children playing in front of Mrs. Wright's class. Angie's next door neighbor and sometimes best friend, Sylvia Rico, was there, and so was bashful, ever smiling Teddy, Teddy Mendoza, who could do long division in his head. But the rest of the kids in Mrs. Wright's class were white. Mrs. Dewey's class was a mixture of white and brown students like some swirl dessert. Then there was Miss Leake's class, which was nearly all brown. And except for the unwanted attentions from the horrible Armando Cornejo, it was a class in which Angie had felt at ease and essential until Wanda Garcia's question. After school, as she walked home with Eva, she reported this news. Of course, it's how they do what Eva said. They put people together who are alike. Otherwise, you have bedlam and mayhem and anarchy. Angie was afraid to ask what all those words meant. Besides, she couldn't tell if Eva was joking. Because they were new to Kimball Park Elementary, Angie asked, how did they know what I'm like? Eva shrugged, it's in the records. Angie wondered if know-it-all Eva knew what she was talking about. When Angie tried to imagine such records, all that came to mind was a stack of 45s on her dresser at home, the Shirelles, Martha and the Vandellas, Leslie Gore. She would buy the new Beatles record with their next allowance, she decided. While Angie's mind had wandered to records, she fell a few steps behind Eva's slightly pigeon-toed but purposeful stride. Suddenly, it occurred to Angie that if the fourth grade classes were split into dumb, smart, and in between, the sixth grade classes had to be two. She caught up to Eva. What are you in? Eva looked at her as if she were stupid. I'm in the smart class. <laughs> That's fantastic. I am, okay, so I will read from the five acts of Diego Leon, um, which just came out, came out on paperback this past year. Um, it seems like a lifetime ago that we're talking February, 2020. Uh, and um, what you need to know about this, uh, this book is the book follows the, um, it's a historical novel, follows um, a young protagonist by the name of uh, Diego Leon, who ends up in Hollywood in the late 20s and 30s and becomes an actor for a uh, fictional film studio called Frontier Pictures. This section takes place in October and it's the year 1928. And I felt it was appropriate since we are in October uh, to, uh, to read this section. And it's a very short section. Um, and uh, what you need to know is Diego uh, has been in Los Angeles at this point for about a year or two. Uh, he's struggling. He's trying to sort of break into acting. And uh, he receives a note from uh, uh, Elva, uh, a woman who was his caretaker uh, when he lived in um, a rural part of Michoacan, um, uh, right after his mother died and right before his father came back from the revolution. So this is October, 1928. 
It was the time when the monarch butterflies, which migrate down from Canada and into the United States, returned to Mexico to spend the winters under the lush and temperate canopies of tall trees in the hills and valleys of Michoacan. It was also the time of the year when the dead returned to the earth from the afterlife. The city of Morelia would no doubt be making preparations for the Day of the Dead festivals, Diego thought. The bakers would be making pan de muerto, tracing into the loaves of warm bread designs meant to resemble crosses or doves or human bones. Vendors would set up makeshift stands along the streets to sell sugar skulls, their faces and foreheads decorated with brightly colored intricate scrolls. Campesinos would come from the hills carrying bundles of red and yellow marigolds that they called sempasuchil on their backs. Elba once told him the Purepecha referred to them as the flowers of the dead because their color helped guide the spirits of the deceased back to the altars their families erected for them, adorned with food and alcohol and candles. It was Elva who taught him not to fear death, not to fear the spirits that returned each year. So it seemed only fitting that the news reached him then, during that time of migration and return, that time when the air is heavy with the spirits and echoes. He was in the courtyard of the Ruby Rose, the apartment building where he rented a room. He was sketching clouds in the sky with a thick charcoal pencil, remembering the name Purepecha of charcoal, Haniqua. A Western Union messenger approached and handed Diego the telegram. It was from his grandmother. He signed for it and the, the messenger bid him a good day before turning to leave. No doubt it would be another plea for him to return, but no, it wasn't. His father, she wrote, his father was dead. Her message was brief. He glanced at it, catching only a few words and phrases as he felt the blood rush to his face. An old woman had appeared at the door with the man who identified himself as Luis Vara. Gabriel Leon, she wrote, his father was dead. He'd shot himself with a gun. The old woman, Diego now thought. Had it been Elva? Was she still alive? He whispered her name a few times as he held the telegram. Elva, he said. Elva, Sanda, Haniqua, Anhatapu. He conjured up an image of her, a scent or a sound, something to remind him of her, of her presence in his life. He tried remembering his father's face but all he remembered was the scar, the one he came with after fleeing the revolution. Diego rose now, and the notepad and pencil fell from his lap and onto the floor of the courtyard. He had to go. He had to find a church. He knew it was important to pray now. So I'll stop there. That's beautiful. Thank you, Angie. It was, it was great to hear you. I'm sorry, uh, Donna. It was great to hear you read. I'm looking at your book here and, um, and thinking about Angie. Um, so, um, you know, it's, it's great to be here with you. Um, Skylight has always been a bookstore that um, has featured um, prominently and importantly in my sort of literary career uh, as, as a writer. It was the first place that hosted me when my first book came out. And then they hosted me uh, this during this last time when my last book came out. And um, it's always been a destination for me. So I just have to give a shout out to Maddie and to everyone at Skylight and, and to all independent bookstores. I think it's important that we support them, especially now during these uh, trying times. Wouldn't you agree? Definitely, yes. So, so I had a question for you. Um, uh, you know, go, sort of going back to your... Um, your history as a, as a, as a writer, um, you grew up in, um, tell me a little bit about where you grew up. Uh, I grew up in National City, California, mostly. So it's uh, in Sa South San Diego County. It's like 10 miles from the border with Tijuana. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a, you know, it's a small place uh, and it felt um, I mean, it was a perfectly fine place to go up, but I think that it felt a little confining. It also felt a little defining too, um, which is why I think early on, when I was quite young, I, I decided that I was going to 
move away once I had the opportunity. <laughs> <laughs> but it still holds a, a very dear place in my heart. Um, and I go back often because uh, I still have family um, there. And um, Is that where you started? Is that where you sort of started to write when you were younger? No, you know, I didn't really write when I was younger. I I was in love with books. I I like the idea of being a writer. I just didn't believe it was something I could do. Um, and so I didn't really, I think that desire resided in me for a long time. I think it was there quite, quite suppressed, quite buried deeply inside. And it wasn't until I was in my late thirties that I realized that something very essential was missing from my life and it was writing. And one of the things that was the impetus for me to pursue it was when my friend Kathleen Alcala had her first book published oh, yeah. and I went to her reading and it just sort of brought home to me the, the possibility, just knowing somebody who was a writer, I think made it more, made it seem more possible for someone <laughs> Mm -hmm. to, to try and pursue that as well so what did you do like um did you take did you take writing workshops did you um, yeah i tell did us a little bit about that journey i had i took classes because that's how i learned um through taking classes and so that was the immediate thing i did i signed up for fiction writing at the extension classes at the university of washington and that was really the beginning of sort of a long-term um, commitment to taking classes and workshops. And so I started doing that in 19, my first class I enrolled in was in 1992. And then several years later, I felt like I was ready to go to a workshop. I went to the community of writers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that was a real revelation to me too, um, just meeting uh, other writers and also being in a, a workshop group where, you know, these faculty, these famous writers would rotate in and we would have the opportunity to, um, to not just meet them, to, but to hear them talk about writing and for them to lead a workshop in, in writing, how how to read somebody's work and how to discuss it that was really important yeah yeah, yeah lifetime it, there was it was the beginning of a lifetime of study yeah <laughs> so what were workshop experiences like for you as a as a writer you know as a writer of color you know writing stories about you know um uh communities of color um what was that experience like well, it was always scary to share your work, but I, but before the um, Community of Writers Workshop, I did go to a very small one-day workshop near, on the Olympic Peninsula, it was at Olympic College. Um, I, li I'm, I live in Seattle. And um, so I shared a story that eventually appeared in my um, collection, Ola and Goodbye. And um, the characters in that book are three generations of a Mexican-American Mexican family. And the first generation is, um, are immigrants. Um, so I shared one of those stories. And <laughs> one of the comments I got was this older white gentleman who told me that I absolutely got my character wrong because he knew a Mexican-American woman and <laughs> Not behave that way and it was like well wait a minute <laughs> like, your one experience with a Mexican-American woman and makes you an expert and it's like I didn't know how to respond to that remark it was my first experience with having you know other people read my work and listening to their comments and I guess I was just sort of startled <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how to respond, but it it made me think too about how people um, bring their own experience to a work, and if your work doesn't match their experience, then and if they don't have room to to let that other information in that's new to them, then then it's. <laughs> Then you know they then they don't have room. They won't accept anything outside of their own experience, which mm -hmm. I think is 
unfortunate because that's why we read, right? Yeah. Band yeah. experience and to learn about other people's experience outside of our own. Sounds like you handled it a lot more diplomatically than I would have, I'll be honest. Well, I mean, I think I, I, I didn't handle it. That's, that's it. that's a problem. I didn't handle it. And I think now I would, of course, um, respond differently. <laughs> I, mean, I, you know, it was just, I was kind of shocked. <laughs> yeah. Well, those situations are really hard to handle. Um, I think it's, you know, we, we don't have manuals for that, right? And and we don't really have, you know, having been both both a participant in the workshop, um, uh, like like at places, you know, summer gatherings, and then also being on faculty now uh, at many of them, um, you know, those 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 conversations always come up, and and we we, you know, there isn't a manual for how to deal with those things, unfortunately, right? right. So we're kind of we're kind of left to our own devices, right? Yeah, and so it makes me think too. <laughs> looking back at your first book when it came out, Stillwater Saints, mm -hmm. and there was a lot of positive response to that. I remember, but I think you might have also gotten some responses that were sort of akin to what I experienced in that first workshop. And so, what do you what? what did you do and how did you respond? Because it was your first book and it was like, you know, everything is new and everything is raw. And, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was very, it was very strange. I didn't, you know, when I set out to write that book, I didn't um, think that it would you know, sell to a major publisher the way it did. I mean, I was really lucky. It, it was like this, you know, once in a lifetime thing, I signed this huge book contract. Um, and because while I was writing it, all I kept hearing was, and all I kept seeing was the proliferation, I think, of stories about people like us from communities like ours written a certain way, right? If you were writing about the Mexican-American experience, they had to be migrant farm workers or gang members, or there had to be some magical realism, or that like there were certain tropes that kept getting sort of... Um, I guess hammered into sort of my 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 brain um, either directly or indirectly by people both in workshop and out out of workshop, and and so you know being the stubborn sort of um, uh, um, uh, kid that I that I was raised to be where I I didn't like to play by rules, I rejected a lot of that, and so I told myself when I write this book I'm going to write the kind of book that I would want to read. Uh, and I'm going to populate it with the types of Mexican, Mexican-American characters that I see every day. Um, you know, truck drivers and insurance salesmen, school teachers, shop owners, you know, uh, those were the people that I saw in my community who were just as real and as vivid as, as any. And I, I felt like I didn't have to uh, resort to, you know, to shorthands or, or stereotypes. But I certainly did uh, experience a lot of those comments you know, people saying, I don't know any Mexican family that has only one or two kids. Mm. Uh, I don't know Mexican, you know, I, I didn't know that Mexicans really liked, you know, Elvis Presley or um, is this true or is that true? Like um, this, this book takes place in a botanica, you know, where there's religious candles and spells. So I'm imagining you're writing magical realism, right? So, you know, there were a lot of those. Um, I, I think one of the things that we can do as writers is the best thing that we can do. And I think that's one of the things that I admire so much about your work and your writing that you've done is we educate ourselves, right? We are, we have to sort of, as writers of color, we have to know what uh, material is out there, what expectations are kind of placed on us as writers of color so that we can actively work uh, to um, undo those, right? To, to go out and to, to, to counter that because you and I know, having grown up in National City during the 60s and 70s and ha me having grown up in the San Gabriel Valley in the, in the 80s and 90s, that our experiences are many, that they're not just gang members and, and you know, migrant farm workers, though those do exist, but our experiences are many and they're very complex, right? Just like Angie is, she's a very complex character, which is what I really liked. How did you, you know, so yeah, I mean, I'm. I, what, what did you want to say about that? 
No, when you talked about how you populated your book with people that you saw, you know, around you, and that's that's sort of what I've done too in my work, and and I think it's because it's what I know, and and so I don't know if it's for lack of imagination that I don't go beyond that, but. <laughs> I, and you, cause you talked about you, you know, you looked at the, the people around you and that's basically what I did because it was, it just made it, uh, it was that, it was that world I wanted to recreate too, because um, in actually all my books, I, I set them in a place called Kimball Park, which is, there's actually a park in National City called Kimball Park. And even though I've lived away from National City and Kimball Park for decades, many, many decades, I still feel this pull to put my characters and in this place that, that is similar to National City. And I, I don't know exactly why that is. And maybe it's because the place you grew up in, you know, that you, it's sort of embedded in you because those are your formative years and everything everything that seems significant at the time as you grow up um, is happening in that particular place. And so you associate those um, very significant um, incidents with that place. And Yeah. Uh, I think that's what I, I liked so much about, um, about, you know, living color was, uh, you know, you get a real sense of, of the place. I think it's, I mean, and, and, you know, despite you not having been there for a long time, it 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 does remain very vivid. It's almost like this: the place becomes a character itself, right? Yeah, I, I I I hope that's the case. I mean, I feel like um, I I don't know how often I actually describe or mention Kimball Park. Well, in in some stories, it it, it comes up um, frequently. But I think um, I think there's a way to create that atmosphere, um, even just through the characters, their um, their thoughts and their and their actions. Yeah. So this is your third book. The uh, Living Color is your third book, and um, my my question, I guess, my next question is, um, I want to talk a little bit about form. Um, but but my next question is, um, what what challenges did a writing a character like Angie Rubio present you uh, that you didn't see sort of come up in in your previous books, and and also what what opportunities did writing a character like Angie present you that 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 wasn't available in other books in the other two? Well, for this book, Angie Rubio in Living Color. I actually based a lot of the incidents in Angie's life on things that happened to me. Mm -hmm. uh, I had this whole store of incidents in my um, childhood and adolescence that seemed to, um, I don't know, they were just so deeply embedded in me in terms of, um, these mortifications or these small humiliations that I experienced, or just this sense of, of of awkwardness and not knowing how to be in the world and trying to figure it out. And so what I did was I invested Angie Rubio with all of these insecurities and all these needs and wants. And I wanted to see how this character, who I who I did separate from myself, I wanted to see how she would handle these different situations and so for me it was a way to process those things in my past through this character through um through this separate character um and and so while i was investing her with those insecurities i think also what what arose and whether this was conscious or subconscious that there was also this sort of sort of resiliency um, that made her keep going despite all of these little like setbacks and these constant um, microaggressions um, that 
that she was also always, you know, constantly trying to work against. Yeah. What did you learn about yourself in writing her? Because I think that's, that's, you know, really interesting. I, you know, I really admire writers that, that, that do that, that can sort of take experiences that they, that they had in real life and, and kind of fictionalize them. Like I've, I've never been able to master that. Um, which is why I like, if you look at my sort of oeuvre, right, my, my characters are always like far detachments from myself. Um, so I, I've always admired writers that can take um, actual lived experiences and, and, and sort of distill them. And then it's almost like building them back up again. Um, and, 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 and sort of, you know, uh, uh, taking their own lived realities and creating these characters uh, from them. So I'm curious to know, like, what do you learn about yourself through that process? <laughs> well, the first thing that pops into my mind is that, you know, this idea that you create characters that are totally separate from you. And where I, even when I created two, uh, like in my first book, I had two male protagonists. Um, but I still felt like I was using a lot of uh, my own lived experience. <laughs> so I'm just wondering, because what I would love to do is write something like you did, like um, the five acts of Diego Leon, where it's um, totally separate from some somebody that I know or have, or even myself, um, where I, you know, a lot of my work um, sort of arises out of things that I know or have experienced. So I would love to be able to do that. Um, so I think that's the first thing I think about in terms of what do I learn about myself is that <laughs> I would like to do that. Um, but in terms of writing Angie and what I learned about myself, um, that, that's a hard question. Um, you know, and I don't know if it's a, if it's a, if I should answer it in terms of craft or in terms of like in sort of, in, sort of any kind of personal, um, whatever, level. whatever you feel. <laughs> um I well I you know in terms of craft I I I I've mentioned before in other um conversations that um some of these incidents or at least one of these incidents I tried I tried to write it um uh, in an essay um but it, it it was never quite satisfactory to me um but when I started to fictionalize it, it made it easier because I could throw in all these different things that um, that didn't actually happen. You know that I could I could create something. I could create a situation. I could create um, the responses to this character that this character would have, and that gave me more freedom to really think about what that incident meant to me but I could do it, I could view it through the eyes of another character and see how she um, reacted to it. So, so for me, what I, what I learned is that, <laughs> is that what I was not capable of doing at, you know, myself in these certain situations. And I wonder if anybody, uh, you know, at that time, at that age could have done it. Um, but and also I think that in writing the character of Angie, there were uh, limitations on what I felt she was capable of doing just because in all these cases, she didn't have any power. She didn't have any authority. Mm. She could only respond within her own um, sphere of control, which was very small. Um, and so what, what resulted was that, you know, she may have felt a momentary sense of relief, but she really couldn't change anything. And, and knowing that she couldn't change things was sort of just added to the to the to the sense of frustration. Yeah. But I think as she got older, she became more intentional in her responses. Mm -hmm. I think that gave her a little bit more satisfaction. Um, yeah, I think that that's what you know. One of the things that I really I really admired about um, this book is is that you do see a character like Angie sort of developing her own sort of sense of, of, of self-identity as, as, you know, as it progresses, right? As the, as the narrative grows, you know, um, you start seeing her sort of uh, become more self-aware, um, 
you know, uh, making decisions, articulating the world around her a lot, a lot more. Um, and I, and I think that that's ultimately, I guess, one of the things that, um, that writing literature teaches us, right, is that we can look back at our own experiences and say, you know, realize how, um, how out of control or how, how much lack of control we had over our situations, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what a painful awareness that that is sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I do think you're right. I mean, I think all of us are, just, you know, in some degree or the other, you know, uh, our characters. I, you know, when I was writing Diego, one of the things that I began to realize was, um, you know, my, my parents grew up in Michoacan and, um, you know, t- today is, is um, Indigenous Peoples Day. And so I wanted to read that section because there, there was a lot of the sort of Purepecha language. My, my parents were, were Purepecha. And, um, and so there are elements of my spouse sprinkled in, in Diego, certainly. Um, as an artist, like under, understanding your, your place as an artist and your ability to do the things that you want to do when you're sort of operating into this sort of, lo- in this larger mechanism, right? Um, so I do, I do think that there are elements of us and to one degree or the other in, in our characters, right? And each one, I guess, does teach us something about ourselves. Um, I think one of the things that I wanted to ask you also was we, 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 um, we sort of both write, I think, uh, you know, uh, like unconventional quote unquote narratives, right? So I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, form, um, You've had, you know, you've written a collection of stories. You've written um, a novel, and and Living Color is is kind of a collection of linked stories. So my question was, and and as I was reading this, um, I wanted to sort of one. I was I was curious, and I wanted to ask you, what did you think that a collection of linked stories um, could give you? Say, you know. Um, in, in writing it, why why choose a collection of store of linked stories for Angie Rubio and not say a traditional novel? Um, well, that's easy <laughs> because when I was writing these stories, I started writing them between other projects. So it was sort of as a distraction from other projects, or because I was invited to do to submit a story for something, and I thought, okay, I'm going to write a story with this character. And it wasn't until I'd written a couple of them when I realized, you know, same character. Um, And it was um, the first two I had placed, first one I'd placed in sixth grade and the other one I'd placed in kindergarten. And I realized, oh, there's this, you know, connection in terms of education and, so I wanted to do that. So I thought I was I would do each grade and just think about what this character learns in each grade, not necessarily in the classroom as part of the curriculum, but what we learn in school, um, just about the world, just about mm-hmm. who we are, just about what our place is in the world as a result of who we are. And so this is what, what I wanted to do for Angie. And, and so I think sometimes, and I, at the, at that time, I wasn't necessarily thinking about, oh, it's going to be a book. Um, and I was just thinking about these as separate stories that I was having fun writing. But I think at a certain point, you realize what you're doing. <laughs> you realize what you have. And, you know, I think sometimes the structure presents itself because you've chosen to do a, a certain theme, you know, certain, like I was doing this education theme. And um, so I didn't have to wrestle with the structure, but I guess the question was at the end when I had all these stories lined up, the question was, do they remain stories or do, do I sort of massage it into an, an actual novel? And, and I don't know whether it was out of <laughs> or maybe it was just that this was how it ca- came to be and this is how I want it to be. And... So, so that's the way I figured this is it. This is the way it's going to exist. And, um, it, and then maybe that's why I had a little trouble early on with 
people taking an interest in it uh, because you know i think when you submit it to places they want to know they want you to tell them this is um like you know i said it was a collection of stories but a lot of people say well you know we want a novel <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> certainly what happened to me yeah and so I don't know. I mean, I have a friend who had the same situation where she had these beautiful stories and she was told, oh, it would work better as a novel. So, so she spent years making it into a novel and it's a great, it's a great, you know, I think the stories were, were the stories that I was able to read were, were wonderful. The novel now is great, but it's still like, it, it's different. Yeah. It's, yeah. So, well, I think that's, you know, that's, that's kind of what happened to me in my, with my first book. Um, you know, it started out as my senior thesis at, at UC Riverside, where I now teach. It's kind of, it's kind of strange to be, you know, sort of um, on the other side of it. And I tell my students all the time, you know, don't, my, my undergrads, you know, don't discount what you're doing here because it could, it could certainly be the material for something uh, bigger. I started working on Stillwater Saints when I was an undergrad and they started out as stories. And the only thing that they really had in common then was each character would pass through this shop, right? This botanica, this shop where they could get a candle or herbs or teas, or if they felt somebody was like, like had put a spell on them. So they would all sort of pass through the shop. And um, when I graduated and I applied to graduate school, I, I went in with that project and I said, well, I've got this, you know, this book and I want to work on this. And then the more time I spent writing the characters, um, then it sort of came the community, right? So I thought, well, I want a fictional community because I'm a big fan of, of people like Faulkner and I, you know, Winesburg, Ohio was a book that I read that really, you know, um, influenced me. So then I created this fictional community. And then before I knew it, I had, I had people kept saying in the workshop, well, what about the one that runs the shop? And, um, and so then I wrote her and I decided, well, since all the characters are in first person, I think I want to write her in third person because I hadn't written third person before. So then now I had these first person stories and then this sort of larger narrative gluing them together with this woman, older woman who runs a shop and her experiences over the course of a year. And so when I finished it, I was like, well, what do I have? Do I have a novel or do I have a collection of stories or do I have a novel and stories or, or what is it? And it was a professor of mine at Irvine who said, now don't worry about what to call it. Um, you know, we didn't know to call it a novel until somebody else wrote it. And then another person pointed and said, hey, look, let's call that a novel. So I, I kind of went out with that. And when my literary agent took me on, she said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll market it as a collection of stories. And I thought, okay. And then when my publisher, when Random House bought it, they sort of, they took it on and they're like, no, it's a novel. So, so it's sort of, you know, I, I think you're right, though. I think we as writers, the important thing is we have to respond to whatever form the book takes, right? Like whether it's, you know, a collection of stories, linked stories, a novel, novellas, you know, those are all sort of like constructs, I think, that are beyond our um, control, right? The only thing that we, I think, it's important for us as writers to control are the characters and the situations, right? Like, Angie is the one that's clearly pulling us through all of this. And, and I think that that in and of itself is an interesting and a very unique structure, right? Um, because to me, the, these, these, these stories read like a, a complete portrait of a young woman, right? Growing up and sort of struggling with a lot of the same things that I recognize in myself struggling whether it's a novel or a collection of stories or whatever, doesn't really matter. What matters is that there's an engaging character, right? Who, who we as readers want to really be able to sort of root for and understand and champion. Uh, and I think that's what makes it so special, right? Yeah, I think what you said about the character who um, engages us, I think that I agree that that's, that's pretty key. Yeah. Were there writers, were there writers that influenced you? Um, you know? For a particular book, I have to say, um, what, what, I remember when I watched, uh, saw the movie Boyhood, 
Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, that's what I'm doing with Angie Rubio. (laughs) That's like, I mean, that's sort of the, you know, I was, I was, I was watching this movie where, you know, it was sort of episodic where you saw this character at different stages of his life. And I thought, this is what I'm doing with Angie Rubio. So, um, so I thought that was, that sort of, I don't know if it influenced me, but it sort of validated for me what I was doing. Um, and in terms of um, writerly influences, I mean, I think that um, there are writers who I read and I, I know that they're influencing me in some respect. Um, but I, you know, I, I can't identify exactly how, because I think that we are influenced by who we read and what we read. And we're sort of subconsciously tucking things away that we want to try to emulate or try to remember how they did a certain thing. Um, And I mean, I could mention like writers that I um, admire and read. I I won't be able to say exactly how they influence me. (laughs) That's okay. Um, but, But yeah, I think almost everybody I, I read, I have, has some influence on how I look at, how I look at what I'm doing. Yeah. So, and also, so like when I've been reading the five acts of Diego Leon, one of the things that I think about is because in, in Olin Goodbye, my story collection, I mean, I do set some of those stories like in the twenties, thirties, forties. But I was wondering about how you went about um, establishing the story and those characters in that specific time period. Yeah, you know what? It was it was really funny. It was kind of a, a, a weird sort of accident. Um, I had uh, seen a write-up in the LA Times um, about, there was a, the, the Ricardo Montalban Theater. They were going to you know, sort of, established the it was a big write-up on it and they interviewed they interviewed the actor and one of the things that he mentioned was uh, we talked a little bit about his experiences in being a latino actor in hollywood you know during uh the period that he was that he was coming up and and some of the um you know the frustrations that of having of always being typecast right as a latin lover um you know getting getting you know his you know uh um you know, wanting to do other things, but not getting permission from the studio to do things. Um, So he talked about the frustration of that. And then right around that time, the uh, original, the the Todd Browning uh, 1930s version of Dracula was being released on DVD. And one of the DVD specials was um, a, a, a version that they had done um, in Spanish of the film using Spanish actors who would come in at night after the English crew had left. Uh, the Spanish actors and directors and makeup people would all come in at night to film. The reason they did that was it was easy to import films to uh, Spanish speaking markets in Latin America and Mexico. Uh, during the silent era, because, you know, you didn't have to worry about like dubbing or, you know, uh, uh, any of that, because um, all they would do is just change the title cards uh, in between the scenes in in silent films. But then when sound came, that completely changed everything. So studios didn't really know how to handle that. This was before closed captioning and all of that. So they really were kind of stuck in a quandary and and it just so happened that during the early 30s the latin american appetite for hollywood films is growing so suddenly studios were like well what do we do so a lot of them resorted to filming two versions of the same movie one in english and one in spanish and so um that's what they did with the dracula film is they filmed you know two versions of it and the dvd special um when it came out, had the version of the, the Spanish language film. And I thought, oh my God, this is such a great metaphor. So I, you know, I bought it and then I watched it 
and that's kind of what led me to put those those two things together was well you know what would it have been like for an actor in hollywood during the 20s and 30s who's this mexican actor who comes in and has a lot of ambition and really wants to you know be an actor uh, and entertain um you know and he signs up with this film studio and then ends up sort of becoming this latin lover and gets really groomed and has an entire biography sort of sketched out for him and constructed and and so that's kind of how it that's that was the impetus of Diego and plus you know I'd read a lot of bi biographies of of people like um Ramon Novaro whose parents you know came to Los Angeles um in the wake of the revolution because Ramon Novaro's father was a really wealthy he was like a he was a doctor and um they came to escape the violence of the revolution and they ended up in in um united states and that's how ramon novato sort of ended up you know uh, here and and developed a really love for performing and dancing and and became the first kind of latin lover of the silent film era uh and of course ramon novato was you know haunted by a lot of demons he was you know a closeted homosexual and you know he he was you know very catholic and he he had these huge sort of um moral sort of um battles that he was always fighting and he became an alcoholic and it wasn't until his death that everybody sort of realized that he was gay um and it was when he was he picked up two um uh he picked up a hustler now hustler um took him over to his house and this is in the 60s and the hustler had a brother and they um uh beat ramon novato to death wow and his house and that's kind of what that's how everybody that's what was confirmed that he was gay so you know ramon novato was a very tragic figure and sort of i wanted to to pay homage to those 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 trailblazers people like gilbert roland uh people like anthony quinn you know these actors who under extreme pressure by these film studios have to perform certain roles right well, I love too how Diego's beginnings are so different and so humble from where he ends up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was, I mean, it was a lot of research doing that. And I sort of was writing it. Um, and halfway through, I'm like, what did I do to myself? <laughs> you know, why, why did I take up this, um, you know, uh, this project? Uh, because there was a lot in there, you know, I, I, you know, I, I want it. And then, you know, each, each decision you make is like, okay, well then that, then I have to introduce this and then I have to introduce that. And so, you know, I had to introduce the Mexican revolution. And then I'm, from there, I had to go into the Cristero rebellion, which was really bloody and, and was a direct result of, of the Mexican revolution. And then he comes to Hollywood and then silent films are ending. And then we're, we're bringing in the talkies. And then what does that do to the culture? So each, each sort of turn, I think, presented me with a challenge. It's like, okay, and as writers, that's what we do, right? I'm sure that's what you do with Angie, too. It's like, okay, so, okay, now is a challenge. Like, what? how do I handle this, right? Much easier for me, because I wasn't writing historical. Well, I mean, I suppose, like, now we're, we consider the 60s and 70s historical. <laughs> but, but it's nonetheless challenging. You know, I'd say with a character like Angie, even more so because I think it's she's drawn from so much of your own personal experience that I think as a writer, you feel a compulsion to really stick to the truth, right? To some degree. And so you're, you probably wrestled with a lot of like, well, it didn't happen that way, but. Yeah, I, I wanted, even though she's a child and adolescent in the book, I still wanted her to have some awareness of what was happening in the country and in the world, even though she wasn't directly, um, so directly affected by it. Um, just the ideas behind it, the ideas behind equal rights and, and the ideas behind the brown power and black power movements. Um, those are things that play in a very much smaller, you know, microcosm in her life um, that, you know, she's, she's at some level, she's aware that there's a connection to what's happening in the bigger world, but, you know, kids and teenagers are often so absorbed in the, in the things that are pressuring them at school and yeah. years. Their own dramas, right? right? Their own dramas are what sort of fuel them. Um, 
you know, I, I, have to, I have two last questions for you. And I, I, I'm, I'm wondering if we could um, sort of um, uh, turn, turn our attention to those. Um, the first one is in, in writing, um, you know, uh, Living Color, uh, Angie Rubio stories, what do you hope your readers uh, come away understanding about a character like Angie? Well, okay, I think I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, we all bring our own experiences to, uh, to uh, what we read. And um, hopefully that we have room in our own worldview to, um, to let these other views into our, um, our, our line of thinking. Um, but I think in general, um, I want readers to enjoy Angie as a character because I think that um, there's often humor in her predicament and her attempts to extricate herself um, from them. But at the heart of many of these um, situations is racism. And um, they're not violent physical attacks, but they are subtle and not so subtle um, jabs of language that, um, that thwart her. Yeah. They thwart her own sense of self. They thwart her struggle in terms of trying to, her trying to figure out who she is and where she belongs in the world. And so I want readers to experience that. Um, I want readers to see that and to maybe think about how, how it, how they, they might observe it in their own lives um, and what they might do to yeah to change that yeah no i mean i i definitely echo that i think that's what that's what i hope with my own work right is that we we offer our readers opportunities to um to you know to witness the um i think complex realities that we embody right that 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 latinos and latinas are so much more than what I think is oftentimes constructed in the media about us, right? Right. And you know, certainly, I, when I say media, I I don't I don't discount publishing because I think publishing also has this tendency, unfortunately, to um, sensationalize uh, the negative aspects of our culture after all of these years, right? Right. Or to select works that just meet their own view of what. Mm -hmm. reinforce yeah reinforcements of that and so it's a challenge when when you know there are writers such as yourself who are who are countering that right because the thing we hear is well these aren't the mexicans i'm used to seeing right <laughs> and and also i don't think people take account enough you know, blended heritages because I am Filipino and Mexican and I grew up in sort of both communities, um, often feeling not quite part of either because I wasn't, um, there are things that I didn't know um, just because it wasn't something I grew up with. It's because my parents had, a, had an idea about how I should be, how I should be in, in, in America. They wanted it was very important for them to be seen as Americans. It was important for their, for their, for that their children be seen as Americans. And so there are things that I did not experience that other Latinos have experienced growing up. There are things that I haven't experienced that other Filipino Americans have experienced. And so I, I think what people should see that we all are different. We all bring, you know, bring our own. Um, unique experiences, even though there are certain things that we share. Um, yeah, agreed completely. We're all different. Yeah, we're all different. Um, I think it's that intersectionality that makes it so unique, right? Um, and that's one of the things I love so much about, um, you know, your work is, is it's, it, you know, the com complexity of identity that makes it so rich uh, that makes it so, um, uh, it's not, it's not out of the ordinary for those of us that have been, you know, that are used to growing up in communities where, you know, uh, our friends are Filipinos. My first quote girlfriend, and, and I say 
not girlfriend like holding hands and kissing in elementary school, but my first, you know, best girlfriend, um, who I still know today, uh, is is Filipina, right? And and so that that was my reality, right? Was growing up and and having her friendship. Um, that's what a lot of the California experience specifically is, right? Right, because there's a lot of there's a lot of connections between the two communities and there's a lot of um there are a lot of what we call mexipinos because there's yeah. a lot of marriage so. exactly exactly there's there's a lot of that and i think oftentimes again we're so used to um i think in talking about race in this country i think one of the things that we fall into is this this idea of binaries right it's either this or that you're either you know, Mexican or American or Filipino or American or Puerto Rican or American, like, and, it, and it's a lot more complicated than that. And, you know, and more so. so like, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what, that's what makes it so, so that's what makes the experiences that you're writing about so unique. And I think so necessary too, especially now, um, you know, when I look at a character like, like, you know, Angie or any of the other characters that you've written about, you know, is, is the identity is so complicated. Uh, and that makes it wonderful. And, and there are other, you know, Filipina, uh, Mexican uh, young girls out there who need to see themselves in literature, right? right. Who, who, need to, who need to have their experiences validated. And, and here's a book that can do that, right? Um, so I think that's really, really important. And, and I, I hope that more people start paying attention to that. Um, I didn't get to my last question, but I think that's okay. Um, okay or not, maybe? Um, you should ask your last question, Alex. Let's okay, do it. I, I, and this is, this is just a question that I get from, you know, and it's a standard, Donna. So, you know, uh, what advice would you give to writers who... Um, who are looking to get their work published, who, who may be writing um, quote unquote unconventional stories, right? Stories where, where there are characters who, who don't fit easily into one category or the other. Um, well, I, I think it's important to um, keep looking for, I mean, if you have a work that you feel is ready to go and you're looking for a place to place it for publication, um, I think you have to keep looking because there's a, some place out there for it. And um, as a person whose works, all three of my books have been by small press, small presses, and um, which I am so grateful for. I'm so grateful that small presses exist because I think that um, larger presses, um, tend to have a more narrow, more defined um, outlook of, of what they want to, of what they want to publish because Absolutely. I am more conservative in, in that. Um, but the small presses are out there looking for work that is different, that doesn't necessarily fit the um, traditional, you know, kind of um, model. So I, I just think, I think of this quote that I think is attributed to, um, now her name just flew out of my mind, Cynthia Ozick. Mm. And, she, and it's, it's, a, it's a quote that's, that is related to the act of writing. Um, uh, Play what feeble notes you can and keep practicing. And so that's sort of applying to writing, but I think it also applies to trying to get published. Just keep doing what you're doing, keep practicing. And I think that something's going to happen. Yeah. Very good words of advice. And um, again, I, before we close, I just want to give a special shout out to, um, to small, to independent book, uh, bookstores um, and independent presses like, like um, Jaded Ibis, who really do take chances right, who are the kind of the renegades and the rebels of the publishing world because they do sort of, you know, um, give a platform for uh, voices that are doing really daring work, right? Yeah, and, that's absolutely their mission. It's yeah. a feminist press and they're looking for books that, you know, for 
about and by um, underrepresented. Yeah, yeah. And um, our bookstores like Skylight rock. Yes. They're, <laughs> Thank they're you. The best. They they keep they keep us they feed us. Um, uh, we love them and we love the people that work there. Um, and so I just uh, I want to say again, Donna, it was such a pleasure to have this conversation with you and. For anyone who's listening, um, please go out and order um, Living Color, Angie Rubio Stories uh, from Jaded Ibis. It's out now and um, order it from your favorite independent bookstore. My favorite independent bookstore is Skylight. And um, let's, keep them, let's keep them going through this, this, this tough time. And uh, Donna, again, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Alex. It was my my privilege and honor. Thank you both. Wow, Alex, you did a great outro. I feel like I don't have to do anything. You <laughs> did I? Okay. Oh no, that was amazing. Like I, I was I was gonna say, like, here, here, everything you said, like small presses, we love them, indie bookstores, we love them. Um, thank you both for a fantastic conversation. I, I had a great time listening today and um, I think our listeners will enjoy this as well. Uh, and let's, let's all meet back under the skylight soon in person when yeah. we can do that again. <laughs> I know, I know. I missed the bookstore. You don't know how much I miss browsing the shelves and, and sitting on the bench and reading. I miss um, it too. Well, Franny, our, our bookstore cat has gotten like extra, extra friendly since the pandemic. So she'll be really, really excited when you come back. She'll, she'll welcome you. Yeah. She'll be like, Oh my God, people. <laughs> yeah, <great."> exactly. <laughs> That's great to know. All right. Well, any last words before we say our goodbyes? Just thank you so much, Maddie. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank All you. Right. Maddie. Thanks Donna. Thank Thanks Alex. And uh, take care. We'll catch you on the flip side. All right. Bye, Maddie. Bye, Bye. Donna. That was fun. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.